Welcome back to the Comic Book Historians Podcast for part two of the Ron Friends Career Retrospective Interview. Let's continue. It wasn't until we were a few, we were a few issues in on Spider-Man and we knew that it was going to be a regular gig that Danny had me doing full pencils, but Rubenstein was more comfortable working on layouts. And initially, Danny, God love him, said, no, I hired Ron to do full pencils. He's going to do full pencils. But my attitude was, if Joe would rather do breakdowns, then I'll do the breakdowns. Because if he's seeing this differently than me, he's feeling limited by my full pencils, and he's not completely using my full pencils. So we're talking about wasted effort. And I said, I'm more than, I'll go to breakdowns. He'll be happier. We'll all be happier with the finished product. And that's what we ended up doing for the lion's share of the run was I went. But when you did the kid who collects Spider-Man, let's talk about that for a few minutes because people still must ask you about that story, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's wonderful that it's still remembered as the way it is. Yeah. Did you get a script from Roger Stern or or how did you first get that? And what did you think when you read it? It was a traditional Marvel plot that I think I think the sections written by the reporter were scripted. I think the I think he had those and he told you where they were going to fall in the storytelling and everything. I thought it was fantastic. I mean, I choked up when I read it, the read the plot the same way people choke up when they read the story, you know. And I was incredibly intimidated. I had already done some Ditko on Spider-Man on the What If I had done because what I tried to do on the What If, which is it comes through to a certain degree, but I, I'm not sure that the inker, and I'm trying to remember, Sam De La Rosa, I'm not sure he had the time to worry about what I was trying to do in the pencils with that job, because those what-if jobs were larger than normal. But on that Spider-Man what-if, it transitioned between the Ditko and the Remedia eras. So I tried to reflect that in the pencils. And again, I'm not sure... Mr. De La Rosa had time to worry about that as he was inking it. You know, I don't know what his deadline was like, but I don't know if it comes through in the book as much, but there is a transition where I went from trying to draw more of a, of a Ditko Peter Parker to drawing more of a Ramita Parker and blah, blah, blah. So while I was doing that book, I became very enamored of what Ditko had done on Spider-Man. And the thing that was a challenge I felt for the kid who collects Spider-Man is that Spider-Man doesn't actually do much in it. He stands around and he talks to, to Tim, and there are some flashback shots of him moving spiderily and stuff, but for the most part, he's in this room talking to this kid. And I'm going, well, how do you make him in that room talking to the kid? You know, you could do him hanging from the ceiling or something, but that didn't seem as warm as having the kid on his lap and everything. And what I came upon is, if you do Ditko, he's Spider-Man, even if he's just standing there. The way Absolutely. Ditko would just have him cock his hip and stand there, that's Spider-Man, you know. Right. So that's why I really wanted to go full Ditko. <laughs> now I'm hearing Robert Downey Jr. go, you never go full Ditko. Yeah, uh, it's funny. I, I tried going full Ditko, and what really worked on that issue, that story, is Terry Austin's work. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Did you talk it, to him after you did no. the pencils? No. I, I don't think I've ever had a conversation with Terry, to tell you the truth. But he nailed, he really yeah. helped reinforce the Ditko feel to that thing. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think that's one of the things. Well, that's really... interesting. You you didn't give him a note. You didn't say, I'm really going no. for, well, it's obvious you were going for Well, Ditko, yeah, it was but... pretty obvious in the pencils what I was going for. And I mean, he's a very perceptive man. So, but he didn't change the webbing. He didn't fix anything, quote unquote, fix anything. And he embraced that. And, and his own line, you know, he always had that almost like a wedge point line with the brush that was very similar to a lot of what Ditko would do with the way he would outline figures and stuff. And it just ended up working. I mean, to this day, that's still, if Marvel would ever approach me or if anybody would approach me about what I would want, <laughs> nobody's ever going to do a Ron Friends Visionaries. But if they did, <laughs> <laughs> that if would they be did, I would still want that in there, you know, I mean, because it's still something I'm very, very proud of. Now, you're about to start like your the regular run on right. Spider-Man. Did you get a call from Tom DeFalco saying, hey, here's what I got in mind for what we got ahead of us? Uh, tell us about how you guys kind of linked up 
Because I think well, you've mentioned that you've described him as the other half of your brain before. Oh, creatively, and, very much so, yeah. I had met Tom before we ever worked together. I met him at a convention here in Pittsburgh. He and Jackson Geis, and he was mm-hmm. just Butch Geis back then, was working on Micronauts. And the three of us went out to dinner and just had a wonderful time talking and laughing about comics and what we loved and what we didn't love. And he was, he was still doing kind of a Mike Golden riff on Micronauts that he uh, obviously came, you know, started to move away from. And you know, so I was, I was kidding him about being the replacement Mike Golden on Micronauts. And he was kidding me about being the, the third Basema brother, you know, the, uh, the least famous Harpo Basema, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, and so we were going, you know, we were going back and forth, joking with each other on that. And DeFalco, he and I remember having conversations with him where we talked about what our favorite Hulk personality was and how we felt about the Marvel style of bombast and the, you know, the hoo-ha action as Tom calls it. And we were just very on page for that kind of stuff. So when he called me as my, to hire me on team up, we had a bunch of conversations. And one of the conversations we had early on is he said, you know, I'm going to be a pain in the ass. And I said, how do you mean? And he said, well, I'm going to let you know what I think about what you're doing and I'm going to make pointers. And I said, Tom, that's fine. As much as I loved working for Louise and you'll never hear me say a bad word about Louise Jones. She's just incredible as an editor and as a, a, a person. I didn't get a lot of that feedback unless I specifically asked for it. Right. I kind of felt a little bit thrown into the deep end because if, if Marvel hired you at that point in the 80s, it's because they thought you could do the work and they needed you to do the work and they needed you to hit your deadlines. And they, so they just kind of pushed you into the pool and you swam or sank on your own. Okay. Yes. So I was very open to whatever feedback Tom wanted to get me incredibly open to that. What was funny about that is, like I said, a lot of that stuff was during the transition between he and and Danny Fingeroth. And the the first team up story I did, I did it for Tom. It was the Wonder Man story by Dave Michelini. And I had done it for Tom as inventory and it was sitting in a drawer, but it didn't see print until after Danny was the editor. Right. And Danny was our editor on the Spider-Man book. And at one point he called me because he wanted a couple of sequences redrawn from the Wonder Man story Mm -hmm. that he felt that some of the storytelling could be a little clearer and all this kind of stuff. And one of the sequences that he wanted redrawn was one of those multiple image sequences of Spider-Man jumping around the room. There was like this danger room sequence in this issue where Spider-Man had to dodge all these different things that were there to test this armor. Right. Mm -hmm. And, Tom wanted to do it as a single shot with multiple images of Spider-Man jumping around. And that's the way I did it. And Tom approved it. And it was sitting in the drawer. Danny wanted all of that redrawn. So when Tom was, you know, talking about what a hard ass he was and everything, I said, hey, hard ass. I just had to redraw pages from a job that you accepted. And he goes, what job? And I told him. And he went, son of a bitch. Really? (laughs) So Danny was a bigger pain in my ass than Tom ever was. But uh, Danny was a very hands-on editor. Danny worried about every comma and every period. And, you know, to his credit, he was an incredibly engaged editor. Oh, cool. I mean, there were, there were times, there was a, early on in the Spider-Man run, Danny was going on vacation. This was before everybody had cell phones, right? He was stopping at, like, every payphone on the way to his vacation to call me about, I just wanted to clarify, do you understand what I'm saying on this note here? And I'm going, Danny, I got it. You know, that kind of thing. There was one time we were on a a conference call that was the Falco and myself and Danny and Tom and I finally had to gang up on him and just say, Danny, it works. It's okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, he would ask for panels to be redrawn and then he'd have somebody in the office do a correction on the redrawn panel. I mean, it was Uh. like, the guy was amazing. I mean, he, he, you got to give him his due, you know? I mean, he yeah, yeah, not... highly detailed. Yeah. I mean, and if you're going to pay an editor to do the job. You don't want somebody that's just a traffic manager. You want somebody that's engaged, that is really paying attention. As yeah. Like a pain that's, in the that's, ass that's... as it can be, that's what you want an editor to do, you know? Right, right. 
There's that interesting mix of crafting it till it's finally done. And is, is there some neurosis or right. anxiety there or not? But the final product is good. So there it is. Well, um, that's ultimately, and even in that one conversation, Tom and I were more concerned about, can we just move on to the next problem? It works. Let's settle hmm. for it works right now. Works. Okay. Yeah. It might not be perfect. We'll worry about perfect next issue. It works. Let's move on. It's interesting. So this is kind of the beginning of you essentially putting the star character in new costumes, like the the black costume in issue 252. You also did the Eric Masterson Thor costume and then even the blue Superman. So, you know, what did you think of the black suit when you first saw it? And, and also, was there a discussion in the beginning that it was going to be an alien later? I don't. I mean, DeFalco came up with the fact that it was an alien. Uh-huh. So I don't necessarily remember him bouncing that off of me because that was stuff that we were dealing with pretty quickly mm-hmm. in the books. When I first saw the black costume, I thought it was a bad guy. They sent me a plot and some Mike Zek drawings of the costume. And I thought it was a new villain because I hadn't read the plot yet. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, this new villain looks kind of cool. And they said, that's not a new villain. That's Spider-Man's new suit. Yeah, And I went, son of a bitch. (laughs) Right when you got the book, yeah. 25 (laughs) years I've waited to draw Spider-Man, and when I get here, he's not (laughs) Spider-Man anymore. I mean, I liked the design. I thought it was fine. The two issues that Leonardi did, I think, really helped me get a handle on it. I mean, it's easier to draw, too, right? Because it's like solid black. You would think that. You would think that. But, you know, if you look at how many people draw those damn legs wrong to this day... It depends on whether or not you're paying attention because everybody draws the fucking legs wrong. Pardon my French. Uh, (laughs) Because people always said that. Well, at least you don't have to draw the webbing. And more people draw the webbing right than draw that damn spider right. I'll tell you that. Yeah, sometimes it looks uh, like a lobster or something like that, right? That's true. Yeah, especially, and that was one of the things that Leonardi brought to it because originally it only had like one break in the legs. It, Mm -hmm. It came up and then down. And it just had the one break, and it kind of fanned out from the top of the body. And what Leonardi brought to it that really, I think, works, it makes it look more organic, makes it look more like a spider, is that second break in the leg. But that's where everybody has trouble, mm-hmm. is where that break is and how, oh, it, that's funny. You know, how it sits on the chest and how it goes around his rib cage. And I mean, some people just draw it like it's a friggin' lightning bolt going around his rib cage or something, and it's... Mm-hmm. It's not supposed to be. In these issues, this is where you and DeFalco, I mean, you co-created like so many characters together. But in this run, a couple characters come to mind. Puma, who you guys introduced in 256. You co-created Silver Sable in 265. Were you guys having like phone calls on how these characters would get visually fleshed out? How was that? Well, the phone calls we were having, because that was one of the questions a few minutes ago, Tom made it clear for whatever the duration of our stint was, that he wanted to create new characters and not use the classics. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay. And then he bought the infamous animal cards from late night television. And from the late night animal cards came Black Fox, Silver Sable, Puma. Right. I think that's it. I think those are the main ones. Uh-huh. So Black Fox showed up in our first, we did 251 and 252. We did off of a plot by Roger Stern. Yes. And then he did 253, 254 with Rick Leonardi. Yeah. And then we started with 255. So, yeah. Where in the run we found out that JR wasn't coming back, I could not tell you. Mm-hmm. All I can tell you is that Danny told me that JR came into the office and was looking through the pages. And Danny liked what Tom and I were doing. So we were at least a few issues in. And that Danny said, you know, so when are you coming? But you're still coming back, right? Because if you're coming back, we're going to stick by the deal. Right. And, and that JR said, you seem to be really happy with what they're doing. And he goes, yeah, I'm very happy with what they're doing. That's not the point. <laughs> if you're still coming back, we're going to stick by the deal. Yeah. And JR said, just, just give it to him. I got my hands full with the X-Men. I'm fine. And Danny called and said, we're in. We're just going to keep doing what we're doing. Now, where in the run that happened, I don't know. But I know that it happened, and the first time I met JR in person, I thanked him for my run on Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. 
So, because he so the, so like let's say like like for example the look of Puma. How much detail were you getting from Tom on the actual appearance, and how much of that was your interpretation, and then adding your own stuff into it? Like, was it pretty well, much Puma? 50- Puma wasn't fifty fifty because. Tom had a very set idea what he wanted for Puma. I actually did a Facebook post on this at one point, showed some of the early designs. Uh-huh. My first design for Puma was very much a person with long black hair, long straight black hair, like an American Indian with a, a helmet, bare chested and all this kind of stuff with a helmet that looked like a Puma, you know, that kind of thing. And mm. Tom said, no, no, I really do want to go more wear Puma or whatever you want to yeah, call it. Yeah, 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 I see. And he says, I want him to change. So I did a couple other designs, some where he was too cat-like, and Tom said, can we find somewhere between this and this? And I said, okay, I know where you're going, okay. And I came up with the original outfit. I called in a friend of mine, Richie Anazeski, who really helps me out anytime I need to design new characters. And he came up with some nice Indian-looking artifacts and stuff for the costume that I thought worked really well. And we did the initial costume. I didn't do a color sketch because I hadn't created a lot of characters up to that point. And these days, I create, when I'm designing a character now, I almost always do it in full color. Full color, There yeah. are some exceptions, but for the most part. I mean, on Blue Baron, I've done color sketches for almost all the characters. Some of the more minor characters I haven't, and Glenn Whitmore does the coloring himself, but for the most part, if it's a main character, I'll, I'll do the design in color. But back then, I wasn't doing that. And the colors they came up with worked fine, but what I wasn't happy with in the initial costume was that there was some confusion as to what was his own fur and what was part of the costume. Mm -hmm. And I wanted it to be much clearer as to what was supposed to be. Like the stuff at his shoulders was supposed to be part of the costume, and I would have colored that red and not close to the orange of his own fur, you know, that kind of thing. So Mm -hmm. that's why I... When he appeared later, I simplified the costume so that anything you were seeing was pretty obviously his fur, you know, that kind of mm-hmm, thing. Mm-hmm. And I did do a color sketch for that one. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, so so Tom, that was very, Tom had a very set idea what he had. The costume he left up to me, but the design of the actual character was, was very much Tom. Silver Sable, he kind of left up to me. I think it was his idea to have her be petite, though. One of the things that kind of got lost in that game of telephone was that she was only supposed to be like five one or five two or something? Oh, okay. At the time, I was I was actually living with and engaged to a young woman who was five foot even. So I was actually drawing her like she was like five foot even because mm-hmm. I loved the idea of her ordering around these big mercenary guys who were all like six foot, you know, that kind of thing. Because mm-hmm. even Spider Man is supposed to be like five ten, right? And uh, so I, you know, I drew her short, but when she went off on her own and got her own series and stuff, that's one of those things that kind of gets lost in the translation sometimes. And she was supposed to look very much like Marilyn Monroe. That was basically in the Bible of the character. Okay. Yeah. Well, no, no, that was me. <laughs> oh, that was you. There you go. Bible covered all the stuff like what country she was from and, and ah. the wild pack and the uncle that she had early on and all those characters, you know, I mean, he, he left the, the actual look. The only thing that, that was changed from the original look was since we had Black Cat at the time and she was a regular in the strip, I actually, my original drawings of Silver Sable had platinum blonde hair. I was still using a little bit of yellow in her hair mm-hmm. to make it look like platinum blonde hair because Black Cat had white hair with light blue on it. Because it makes sense, somebody named Silver Sable would have silver hair, but I didn't think of that. I didn't think that was a really good idea with Black Cat. I was I was overridden by editorial. They said, "No, that's ridiculous. Her name's Silver Sable. She's got silver hair." I went, "Okay." So there you go. That makes sense. Uh, who's so, left? Black Fox. Black Fox. Yeah. You know, he, he was the older guy. With he was supposed to be, you know, reaching retirement. So I gave him the, the white mustache and. In his first appearance, he pretty much just wore a black bodysuit. When he appeared later, I added some, uh, like a backpack for him to carry his booty in and things like that. But, you know, mm. I mean, for the most part, he was just wearing a black bodysuit. So, yeah. He wasn't much of a challenge. I liked drawing the character, though. I, he was, I thought he had a very expressive face. So, Shooter had that incentive program. So, you received a piece of those character appearances. 
Um, how did those did were there new character agreements? Was there a form for that, or what? Uh, yes. Or was it just? How, tell me how that worked. Oh, they were all over you to fill out the paperwork anytime you created a new character. Yeah. Ah, okay. And since Defalco was in the office, he did his share to make sure that I always filled out the the new character agreements and stuff. So, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. When Defalco said we're going to do new characters, was that entirely a creative decision, or was it also, hey, we're going to create characters that we actually have some some piece of? My guess would be it was mostly a creative decision because he had just gone through Roger doing Hobgoblet to kind of resuscitate the whole Green Goblin concept. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm going to go ahead and give him the credit because he's more than earned it that it wasn't about making himself any richer. It was about, he always likes to move forward. It, you know, he'd always rather do new ideas rather than recycle old ideas. If you look at his Fantastic Four run, <laughs> whether you love it or hate it, it's it wasn't traditional <laughs> Fantastic Four stories. No, it was not. <laughs> there you go, see? So I think <laughs> that was, you know, creatively, he tends to just be a person that would rather create than recycle. When we would do later projects, like when we did the Spider-Man 96 annual, he went, okay, Ron, what character would you like to do that you never got to do? And I said, Craven. And he said, okay, we'll do Craven. And then he came up with a fantastic story, flashback story, because what we had talked about wanting to do was the actual moment that George Stacy realized Peter Parker was Spider-Man. Oh, that's, yeah, that's, that's cool. And we, it, it worked out for it to be right there in that period of time where Craven was working for Green Goblin and all that kind of stuff. So it worked out great. I got to do Craven. When we did the two-issue web spinners story that wrapped up that series, he says, you know, what character would you like to do? What villain? Is there a villain you'd like to do that we never got to do? And I got to do Doc Ock. Plus, I also got to do a whole bunch of other. We did the Sinister Syndicate again, so I got to do those guys again. The Sinister Six? Uh, the Sinister Syndicate. Oh, Syndicate. Okay. Yeah. And the only reason that Dorino was redesigned at all under my watch was because Jim Ousley insisted on it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he wanted Dorino to become more like a Transformer. So I maybe he was picturing something more like what was in Amazing Spider-Man 2. I don't know. But I was desperately trying to keep it organic. And the only thing I could think of that wasn't already a part of the rhino was the, you know, if you see a real rhino, there's these plates under the skin that look a little more obvious from different angles. And I said, well, what if I just add those and put some studs on them and shit? Maybe that'll be enough. And, <laughs> yeah. and it was. <laughs> I just kind of went hallelujah, you know, because I really didn't want to do them mechanical, you know, that kind of thing. And um, with DeFalco, you guys were pretty much working Marvel style, right? With this, always, as, yeah. yeah, always with the, with the Falco. Now, yeah, in we would Spider-Man... have we would have hours long conversations where we would talk about Pete and make sure we were all on the same page with who Peter Parker was, and talk about his relationships with all of his supporting cast, and we would talk about his relationships with his villains, and we you know talk about how he feels about what he does, you know his relationship with Aunt May, and all this kind of stuff. We would just have these long conversations about that kind of stuff. And in the mm-hmm. course of that, plots would suggest themselves. And, oh, cool. And Tom, Tom's terrific at writing, in my opinion, is terrific at writing gangster stuff, you know, street-level mafioso-type manipulation and stuff. So he and Rick Leonardi had created The Rose, who was kind of like middle management and all that kind of stuff. And I just loved watching his brain work when it came to that kind of stuff. Yeah, I like that character, too. That's right. He started, uh, he's the one that got Frank Miller really moving in that direction with Daredevil. I have heard those, I have heard those stories from the horse's mouth, yes, that he handed him some old crime paperbacks and everything and, and was really kind of the one that planted that seed in Frank Miller. Yeah. Yeah. So now that one Spider-Man annual 18 in 1984, you did a story with Stan Lee, right? Yeah, well, Stan scripted it, yes. Did he do that one Marvel style, or did he send you a script, or, or how did that how did that work out? Well, DeFalco plotted it, so for me it was just like working off a regular DeFalco plot. I see, um, and then Stan scripted we, we it. We actually after. we actually discussed this on Facebook. I'm not sure we knew 
at the time I was penciling it, I'm not even sure we knew Stan was scripting it yet. So I, I don't, gotcha. I don't remember being scared shitless that I was penciling for Stan. Right, right. After the fact, <laughs> I do remember that Danny got a very nice letter from Stan that mentioned me, and Danny sent me a copy of it. <laughs> that, uh, oh, that's nice. That yeah, that Stan mentioned me that he enjoyed working with my stuff and thought that I had a you know that my storytelling was solid and all that kind of jazz. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That one issue, the Spidey versus Fire Lord, and Spidey just loses his temper and bashes Fire Lord's face in and like wins. That had some nice visceral emotion in that. How did it feel putting that story together? I loved it. I mean, I Tom very obviously wanted to do something along the lines of what they what what Roger and, and JR had done with uh, Juggernaut. And he wanted to put Spider-Man up against somebody out of his weight class, obviously out of his weight class. And I thought it worked great. I uh, It's one of my favorite sequences because in the course of the story, at the end of part one, it tells you everything you need to know about who Peter Parker is. Because at one point he's going, you know what? He's looking for Spider-Man. He's not looking for me. <laughs> All yeah. I got to do is change to Peter Parker and disappear into the crowd. But then as he's changing, his wallet falls open to a shot of him and Uncle Ben and Aunt May. And he goes, what am I doing? If I disappear, he could go nuts and he could hurt innocent people. This is my problem. I can't walk away from this. So he remasks up and says, I'm going to give him the fight, the fight of his life. I'm going to do what I can, give him the fight of his life. Yeah. And that's what he did. What's funny to me now in retrospect is because I belong to a bunch of these different Facebook page groups and stuff. You get notified when your name comes up. So I'll go check some of these conversations. And this always comes up. This, those two issues always come up as like either the best Spider-Man story ever because I just cheered for Spider-Man and thought it was wonderful. Or, yeah, but it was BS because there's no way Spider-Man could beat Fire Lord. And not only does he beat him. He just beats him by punching him out. Yeah. And it's like, no, he doesn't. Read the story. A gas station blows up, takes out a city block and blows up right under Fire Lord. A building falls on top of him. His dynamited and falls on top of him. I mean, you know, Spider-Man is throwing everything he can at this guy. <laughs> so it's not just that he, because I, I, I would even argue that he doesn't just get mad and jump at Fire Lord. He's just desperate. He's at that right. point, it's all or nothing. I gotta leave it all on the all on the mat. And he just goes crazy on him. But, you know, even that was on top of everything else that happened to Fire Lord that day, you know. Right. So and, and ultimately if you if you read the follow up in Avengers, he's out for all the ten minutes. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's not like Spider-Man beat him up, you know, that kind right. of thing. Now, so you also I, did some X-Factor covers during this yeah. time. How'd that come about exactly? That's a very good question. I, I don't know what the reasoning would have been. Who is the editor on? Was Wheezy the editor on that? Because I, at that point, I was actually, I didn't find this out until later, but my covers were actually going going over pretty well in the office. Huh? I was told way after the fact. I was told that they would have they would get together with the Mark Grunwald would have these meetings with the uh, associate editors and the assistant editors, and they would discuss different aspects of editing. And they would put all the covers for the month up on the wall, mm-hmm. and they would say, you know, they would pick the best of the months and all this stuff, and that my stuff was doing well in that kind of a process. And I think that's why when I was on Thor, I know Ralph Macchio really liked my covers on Thor. So he, his other two books were Captain America and Fantastic Four. And he said, how would you like to do my covers on those too? Luis was the writer actually. And then Bob Harris was the editor. That's probably Bob Harris. Okay. Yeah. I I mean, it, it may have just come about from that because I also did their corner box shots and stuff. So I don't really know why, because I've never really done much X work, so I I don't remember any specifics about it. But yeah, I enjoyed doing those covers for the brief time I was doing. Because you were the Spider-Man and then obviously the Thor guy, so it was interesting that you were actually knocking out 
some X factor covers, but I, I guess I think maybe the office was thinking, you know, this guy draws such, such good and genuine Marvel style that they're just really trying to make those covers pop. Right. Probably as much as anything. And I tended to suggest, and I don't, they didn't always use it, but I tended to suggest cover copy and things like that. And Ralph Macchio let me do all my own cover copy on Thor. I mean, he would occasionally edit it of course, but and Captain America, you know, and even the Fantastic Four covers, he liked the fact that I, because at the time, DeFalco's belief was, and he was editor-in-chief during some of that period, I don't know what Shooter's idea about it was specifically, but Tom DeFalco's idea was if there was any cover copy at all, that was a good thing, because if you had to stop even for a second to read the cover copy, that was a couple of seconds that you more that you were spending looking at that cover and that, mm-hmm. that, that in, you know, that, that increased the, the possibility that you would buy that comic, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. So Ron, before we move on from Spider-Man, I wanted to ask you about some of the anchors you worked with. One of the first ones was Klaus Janssen. Your thoughts about him? I just thought I was blessed because <laughs> everybody always knew the kind of work that he did and and how good he was and how he would suggest coloring if he didn't color it himself. And I think Christy colored some of that. Christy Shield colored those issues. But I just I, I just felt like I was the deeper I got into the Marvel stuff. Once I was on Star Wars with Tom Palmer, I felt like I was a Marvel guy. Once I had done the Fantastic Four What If inked by Joe Sinnott, I felt like I was a Marvel guy. So the more I got paired with anchors whose work I knew, who were named guys, I felt like you automatically feel more protected. You feel like the work is going to look its best when it's going to fix the things you did wrong and it's going to make you look even more like you knew what you were doing. You know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, they had an uh, amazing stable of anchors at this point. Because after oh, yeah. Yeah, and- Jansen... Most uh, of them were finishers, you know. Oh, yeah. Besides Rubenstein, and we'll get to that in a minute, but uh, Brett Breeding did a fair number of your pencils on Spider-Man 2. What about him? I love Brett's stuff. I always have. I remember being in art school and seeing his work over Bob Hall on the West Coast Avengers miniseries. I know when I found out that Brett was going to ink 252... That's what got the rise out of most of my comic book nerd friends was, wow, you're working with Brett Breeding. You know, he he hates to hear that story. He doesn't believe it, but it's true. Bob McCloud did someone on your stuff? Yeah. Bob tends to, I mean, being a penciler himself, he tends to rework some of the pencil stuff and everything. But you can't argue with the finished product. The finished product always looks fantastic. Bob Layton? Well, I really only worked with Bob on some of the... uh, Jameson Wedding Annual. So half of that was inked by Butch Geis and half of it was inked by Bob. I don't remember having any problem with the Bob stuff. But that's a a penciler, too. Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember him, you know, over over changing anything. I I might even be torn on – it's been a while since I've looked at the job. I might not even be able to tell who did what. I probably could because Butch's stuff had a bit of a thinner line and – was a little looser, but yeah, I don't, I mean, again, like I said, I got into this business knowing that it was highly collaborative and you were going to be at the tender mercies of the finisher. Mm-hmm. Now, did you have any anchors where you thought it was doing a disservice to your work? Probably along the way. I, the only one that leaps to mind and it's only, let me say that this is only because it was my first job, but the gentleman that inked my very first case are, there were shots that I didn't think he serviced very well. There were face expressions that I don't think he serviced very well. Ah, okay. And those were, you know, and, and you're looking at that from an angle of like, this isn't just my next comic or whatever. It was my very, very first. It was my second, actually. All right. So I find myself a bit crestfallen, <laughs> you know, looking at it, certainly looking at it and going, well, I'm never going to get hired again would have been overstating it. But, and again, it was only because it was so early in my career, but I mean, yeah, there have been ink jobs over, uh, over what, what have I been in this business? 30 some years. There have definitely been ink jobs I've liked more than others. And there are some that I would have preferred somebody else gotten them or something, but, uh, 
you know, you don't have that call. You don't, they, you, you take the good with the bad. My good has been incredibly good. So for me to piss and moan about some of the not so good would be ridiculous. It would be insincere. So is, is Rubenstein one of your all time favorites? I would work with Joe anytime. Yeah. I don't, you know, I mean, he does bring a lot of his own style to it. So I will say this, I prefer working with Joe if I'm not doing full pencils, because again, the job will always look professional. I mean, it's like with Tom Palmer on Star Wars. I was only doing breakdowns, but my version of what Luke Skywalker looked like and what Lando Calrissian looked like, and Tom already had in his head, he already had a template for who Luke and Lando were, okay? They didn't mm-hmm. always line up with what I was trying to do. But he was the final look of the book. That was his job. My job was to tell the story in pictures. His job was to finish it. And so you get used to it. <laughs> you know, I mean, you say, okay, that's his job. So I need, to, you know, I need to shut up and let him do his job. When I'm working with Joe Rubenstein, it can be very similar because he brings so much of his own technique and style to everything from musculature to facial structure to all this kind of stuff that I am happier working with Joe when I'm just doing breakdowns because then I don't feel like we're clashing. I feel like we're blending. If I'm doing less and letting him do it, then I have no reason to feel like, like I'm being overruled or anything. You understand what I mean? Oh, yeah. We interviewed so, uh, him and he was drawing while we were interviewing him. He never stopped, I don't think. From what I understand, he draws constantly. He's an incredible illustrator. His portrait work is incredible. I The guy's amazing. I mean, he has his talent is so far beyond just what he does on a comic page that it's uh, very impressive to me. He's Joe Rubenstein. <laughs> I mean, we had oh, some wonderful great. conversations. <laughs> when we were working together on Spider-Man, we had some wonderful late-night conversations and stuff. So... And again, I worked with him on Superman, and I was only doing breakdowns on Superman, so that worked great. I thought he was doing some terrific stuff, and he saved my ass on that stuff. And I've worked with him a few times since on different projects. One other question on inking, and then I'll move on. When you do your full pencils, who would be your favorite ideal inker to do it once you've done your full pencils? Well, if you're talking, I mean, because Brett Breeding is going to be my answer in almost every case, because Brett and Uh I are we're we're close enough friends that Brett doesn't have a problem if I have some input on what he's doing. I hope not anyway. I mean, <laughs> but I love what Brett does over over my work. If you're talking about the person that I can full pencil a page, hand it off and know I'm going to get back exactly what I just full penciled, that would be Mr. Salbasemer. Cuz Sal and I oh, are very great. much hand in glove. I learned most of what I know about Marvel illustration from looking at Sal's work. Oh, that's awesome. He really just, he understands my shorthand like nobody else, you know? Mm -hmm. He just gets it. We're speaking the same visual language in a way that I don't think he ever lays a line down where he doesn't, he might not have done that himself, (laughs) you know what I mean? So we just understand each other. I mean, there have been times, you know, at one point I was, Looking at reference when we were on Spider Girl together, I was looking at reference of ballet dancers and gymnasts and the way they point their toes. And I was trying to include that into some of my Spider Girl positioning. And on some of the angles, like when she's coming at you and things like that, they just kind of look like little wedges coming at you. And Sal said, what's this thing you're doing with the feet now? (laughs) And I explained it. I explained to him what I was doing. And he went, don't do that. (laughs) I went, okay, If Salma 7 tells you to stop, you should probably stop. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. So when did Jim Owsley become editor over the Spider-Man titles? The transition was around the time of the Fire Lord two-parter. Danny edited the Fire Lord two-parter, but as soon as Owsley came on board, my pencils, my Xeroxes of my pencils of the Fire Lord two-parter are numbered differently than the issues it ran in because my understanding was that Owsley pulled it out of the regular rotation because he was there was talk about it either making it a graphic novel or a special one-shot or some craziness. I don't know what it was, but in the meantime, he ran fill-ins. And 
the next issue would come out, it'd be a fill-in, and I'd call it the Falco, and I'm going, what's going on? And he said, last I heard, blah, 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 he's walking around with this thing under his arm, figuratively or literally, I don't know, but it didn't run when it was supposed to run, and it made it look like Tom and I couldn't make a deadline or something, you know. Well, that's oh, interesting. It was, didn't he complain at some point that you guys yeah. missed deadlines? A lot of what he said in defense of firing us was unfortunately disputed by other sources. Let me I see, that. yeah. The only two things I'll say about that whole controversy is that Tom DeFalco never missed a deadline in his life, and that Spider-Man was my dream gig. There was no way I was giving it up without a fight. Yeah. And whenever he would give us a new deadline, I would meet it. What was going on in the office at the time, what his what his personal frustrations might have been, and what he was trying to attempt, I don't know. You know, I can't really speak directly to that. I know that he liked the other Spider-Man books at the time better than ours. Mm-hmm. I was at a Spider-Man summit where he referred... <laughs> He referred to Tom and Mai's work on Amazing as the bland corporate Spider-Man. That's crazy. Well, he loved what Peter David and Rich Buckler and Brett Breeding were doing on the death of Gene DeWolf and everything. He loved that. He loved the web of Spider-Man stuff, Michelini and uh, I think it was Silvestri and Kyle Baker or something. You know, He loved uh, Beecham. He loved when, when Beecham did Spider-Man. He thought that was the greatest thing in the world because he was giving Mark Beecham a lot of work. So... He had a very set idea of what he thought Spider-Man should be. And as editor, that's his prerogative. You know, it's his prerogative to make that so. And even his version is that he kind of came up with reasons that don't necessarily hold water as to why Tom couldn't do a monthly book, because that's just not not so. But he even tries to say that he he wanted to start like a quarterly book that would just be Tom and Ron doing their bland corporate Spider-Man to their heart's content, you know, that kind of thing, which, of course, never happened. But So it was just a very confusing, bizarre time. I mean, like I said, if you if you put a whole bunch of people in a room, which Glenn Greenberg did an article for Back Issue magazine about the Hobgoblin mess up and all that kind of stuff and what went on, and Jim Ousley's version of events are unique and unto themselves. <laughs> no, yeah. nobody else's version lines up with Jim's version. You know, this is the one thing I'll say. And uh, I read where he described you as being fanatical about Spider-Man. Did he? Yeah. Did he ever tell yeah. you that? No, he did say in his essay because I read some of the stuff on his website, and he did say in his essay that he worried that I was going to commit suicide when he fired me, which was never a concern. But when <laughs> on the commentary, <laughs> on the comments, and when he wrote that thing on his blog, the comments were, well, if Ron Friends is that crazy, he should go ahead and kill himself. You know, that very supportive oh, I hate stuff that. from the fans. Wow. Yeah. Wonderfully supportive stuff from the fans. If indeed he was concerned about that, thank you. But it was it was never going to be that, you know. Right. That was never the concern, uh, yeah. No, I was so, I, I never considered I never considered jumping out a window, <laughs> and I've only heard this secondhand. This, this this could have been Tom just being supportive, but I will say that in the phone conversation, somehow Jim turned it around to the point where he actually said the words, "I don't expect anybody to feel sorry for me," and my brain was I was reeling at the moment, but I I said, "Feel sorry for you." <laughs> Because he had to make the tough call, you know, that kind of thing. So in the course of firing me from my dream job, he did manage to kind of make it about himself. Tom DeFalco, I think, half-jokingly says that when Housley said, you know, told Tom that he was fired, that he said, is there anything I can do? And Tom said, you could jump out that window right now. (laughs) And then Ousley said, well, so that's the way it's going to be? And then Tom said, well, you could wait until Ron Friends has time to fly here from Pittsburgh so we can both piss on your corpse. Now, that's completely <laughs> uncalled for. I do not that, – that's completely uncalled for and never should have been said. That's uh, hilarious. And, and quite frankly, let me fast forward a couple of years ahead. And when Jim Ousley came back to Marvel and started writing – Conan under Tom DeFalco, who was editor-in-chief, Yeah, Tom was helping him co-plot those things. Tom was the guy who rehired Jim Ousley. Wow. 
I didn't because know that. he heard he heard he was driving bus and that all that kind of, and and the guy's a hell of a writer. I mean, you know, the stuff yeah. he did on Black Panther, nobody's going to argue with that stuff. The guy knows. No, change the characters, great. Yeah, he he knows his shit. I mean, he's a he, he's a solid writer. So Tom could recognize that. Tom wasn't, you know, it's not about grudge. I don't like I said, I don't know what was motivating Jim Ousley, because he's not even Jim Ousley anymore. So I, I can't speak to what was going on with Jim Ousley. In his blog, he talks about all the pressures he was under. I think he was under a lot of pressure. I don't think he should have been hired. I mean, Jim Shooter broke his cardinal rule of hiring an editor when he hired Jim Ousley, because his cardinal rule of hiring an editor was you hire your editor who knows what they're doing, and you stand back and you let them do it, Okay. But when he hired Jim Ousley, because he was very impressed with him as a writer, when he hired Jim Ousley as editor, if anybody said to him, Mr. Shooter, what are you doing? He doesn't have that enough, that enough experience. Jim Shooter's answer, and I heard him say this firsthand, was, I'm not worried about it because all the writers on the Spider-Man titles are editors themselves. Louise is an editor. She was writing Web. Al Milgram was doing Peter Parker. He is also a writer-editor. And Tom DeFalco was writing amazing. He was an editor and a writer. So he said he's surrounded by some of the most solid editors in the business. So the kid can't fail. Of course, wow. the first thing the kid did was fire Louise and Al, and then ultimately <laughs> fired DeFalco. So, now, you know, you can argue about, I mean, he fired Al, but he hired Peter David. He gave Peter David his first chance at writing. So who's going to hate him for that, right? You right, know, right, I mean, right. They did amazing stuff together. So there's all this back and forth and back and forth, and I've always refused to just see things in black and white. It just doesn't work for me that way. And, again, I mean, I, I do think that he was under a hell of a lot of pressure. He was younger than I was at the time, and he was given the Spider-Man titles to edit. You know, I mean, I think the poor guy was in over his head. I think yeah. he was feeling pressure from all kinds of different directions, and I think I do think that he was – seeing things creatively differently than what we were doing. I don't think he might necessarily was crea you know, was agreeing with what we were doing creatively. He thought Spider-Man could be better. And he made the call. I mean, that's the thing. The irony of the situation for me was that Tom DeFoco told me at one point, Jim Shooter came in and said, what's going on on the Spider-Man books? What's this I hear about you being fired? And Tom went, you're asking me? Yeah. You hired the oh. guy? Go talk to your editor. <laughs> you know, I mean, so there's that. I also, Virginia Romita came into Tom's office and said, I just heard you got fired off the Spider-Man books because you can't hit a deadline. And Tom went, that's what he said. He said, Tom, you guys are the most ahead in the house. I use you guys as the stick that I hit everybody else with. Yeah. That's because amazing. before he fired us, at one point, <laughs> using company money, at one point, Jim Ousley got clearance to come into Pittsburgh, fly into Pittsburgh, fly he and Tom DeFalco into Pittsburgh. We went to one of the more expensive restaurants in the city to have this big editorial meeting. And I'm like, oh, boy, what's going on here? And basically, he handed us a new schedule that he wanted us to meet. And we met it. And then he handed us another schedule to meet. And we met that one. And then he fired us. Like I said, there was a lot of other stuff going on behind the scenes, I'm sure. Now, how did you get then moved to the Thor title in 1987? Tell us about that transition. Well, that transition was like a year or more of the only work I had when I was fired off of Spider-Man. Right. Because I had quit. I quit Kickers after three issues because it just wasn't the book we wanted to do. And, you know, we were banging heads with editorial and everything. So I, I got off of that. And uh, then we were fired off of Spider-Man. The only work I had for Marvel at the time was a graphic novel that I was supposed to do with Joe Duffy, a Punisher graphic novel. And frankly, it was this incredible... She ended up doing it with Jorge Safino. I forget what the title of it was, but it was an amazing story. It involved uh, the Yakuza and all this kind of stuff. It was incredible. But I just felt I couldn't do, do it justice. I, I just couldn't. So after doing some thumbnails on it and trying to do some layout work on it and doing the, some little design work on it, I ended up giving it back to the editor. He was not happy with it. I think it was Larry Hama. It was either Larry Hama or Carl Potts. 
Mm-hmm. But whoever it was was very disappointed in me, and and I think I really hurt my rep with with that person, you know. Oh. But I gave that back, so I didn't have anything going on. And around that time, Mike Carlin called, and I did that Superman annual with John mm-hmm. Byrne with Titano. And around that time, I got the call from Ralph Macchio to do some Thor fill-ins. We did the Secret Wars fill-in, and we did the Dargo Thor fill-in. I love those two comics so much. I, I, th- that was when I was starting to like pick up comics off a newsstand. I love that stuff with a passion. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Now, Brett and I worked together on that first Superman annual, and we worked together on those two pieces. And at that point, Walt Simonson was moving off of Thor. As, mm-hmm. but remember, for the last few years, a lot of people seem to forget, for the last few years, he had been writing it, and Sal had been drawing it. Yes, yeah, Sal Bushima was and, drawing some, the, the end right. of it. And, yeah. and, and Tom was being hired as the new writer with Sal. Uh-huh. Okay? And that was the way it was going to be. And apparently Jim Shooter really liked what we did on the Secret Wars Thor fill-in because, and again, this has nothing to do with comparing artists because Mike Zeck had a whole different plate full of things he had to accomplish in any given issue of Secret Wars, okay? I mm-hmm. wouldn't have taken that job on a bet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, he had so much he was trying to do in that book. But apparently, because we had done that Secret Wars fight sequence that was recreating some stuff from that issue of Secret Wars, yeah. Shooter noticed it and really liked it. And he said, well, why don't we just put friends on Thor with Tom? And he goes, that's fine, except <laughs> Thor already has an artist, Jim. And he goes, well, we'll just tell Sal that you're bringing your own artist along. And he goes, except that's not true. Yes. Come on. Ron and I are not joined at the hip. That's, no, we're not going to do that. And Tom told me that there was some talk like that. And I said, Tom, I'm sorry. If, if you think I'm going to stand here and watch Sal get removed from a title for me, that's not happening. I'm, no, mm-hmm. no way. And But then what he, what he said is when they were having one of these meetings, Jim Salakrup, God love him, walked in and said, does anybody have a problem if I hire Sal Basama to do Peter Parker again? Because mm-hmm. I want to get these books all up and running solid. And, and, I mean, it would be great if Sal could come back on Spectacular. Mm-hmm. And everybody looked at each other and went, hallelujah. And Sal was thrilled to go back on Spider-Man. And I went on Thor with the Falco. And everybody lived happily ever after. Well, this is awesome, Ron Friends. Thanks so much for this riveting and in-depth interview here at the Comic Book Historians Podcast with Alex Grant and Jim Thompson. Join us next time for part three of the Ron Friends Career Retrospective Interview. Cheers. Cheers.